Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. We are in the fourth week of a six-week series in the book of Job, and if um, you're kind of first time jumping into this, just going to give you a very brief sparks note, spark notes, if that's still a thing, I don't even know. Um, it's not like Spark AI. I don't know. You guys are like, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> so Job is a book in the Old Testament, and it's considered one of the wisdom books. And it's just this beautiful work of art. It's this ancient, epic poem. And in the first two chapters, we're introduced to Job. And we see that he's this rich and famous man of faith. He's this like upright, really cool, great guy. And then tragedy strikes and Job seemingly in an instant just loses everything. He loses his sons and his daughters. He loses his servants, his wealth. He loses the support of his closest friends. And just from top to bottom, his life is um, destroyed. And, um, and like many of us, you know, Job is asking why, like when, when we are faced with really tough seasons or tough times in our life and things aren't going the way we thought, we're just sitting there wondering like, why, like, why is this happening to me? And so Job is like, why, like, why is this happening? And the book of Job does not specifically answer that hard why question. It doesn't, it, it doesn't give simple, like, pad answers that we might be looking for. Um, you know, to build a, a theological framework of the problem of evil and suffering in the world, there's, like, other texts in Scripture you would kind of use to build that. Um, but what Job does, what Job does so well, is that it gives us a roadmap and a framework for how to suffer well. And um, it helps us navigate the hard moments in our lives. And so if you've missed any of the past three weeks, I encourage you to go check those out. You know, when you're walking or at the gym or on in your long commute or whatever, um, I encourage you to check out those. And so um, today in week four, we are going to be jumping in to chapter 19. And um, this is in the middle part of the book. And um, as we've kind of talked about, there's this poetic dialogue happening between Job and his friends. So Job loses everything. And then friends um, called, you know, called the miserable comforters um, because they miserably comfort him. Um, you know, they didn't do a good job. So they come to try to comfort Job and um, they just kind of blame him for a situation. And um, at this point in chapter 19, there's been a whole lot of them talking back and forth. So that's a whole lot of, Job, it's your fault. And Job's like, what? What do you mean? Like, no. And so by this point in 19, like Job is feeling totally abandoned by his friends. And what we're going to see here in this chapter is um, Job just expressing his feeling of isolation and loneliness in the midst of his suffering. And so uh, with that, we're going to start reading in verse 13 and go to 20, and then we're going to pause. So uh, verse 13, Job says, He, meaning God, has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as they look on a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. 
My breath is offensive to my wife. So she's still around. He's just offending her with his presence of his breath. Um, My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. Like his grandchildren can't, um, you know, be around him. And all my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. That's it. That's all we have today, guys. Uh, Okay. Um, This chapter, wow. So this is some of the most, like, bitter despair in the book of Job. So, like, Job says a lot of stuff. He's very raw with his emotions, but, like, this is, like, the worst. Like, this is his rock-bottom moment. Everyone's abandoned me. Those closest to me are gone And worst of all, like, I just feel like God has left me and is nowhere to be found. And so he hits this rock bottom moment and he just feels utterly alone. And um, one of the things that this passage just immediately brings home is the loneliness that we can experience when we are suffering. One of the most unbearable things about going through really tough stuff in our lives is that it often feels like we are experiencing that rock, moment, rock bottom moment alone. Dr. Mark Mayfield in his book, The Path Out of Loneliness, um, gives a definition to loneliness that I think is going to help us um, make this link between loneliness and suffering. And his definition, definition of loneliness is the state of being unseen or unnoticed, relationally, mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually. And it can be driven by a lack of purpose or meaning, relationship or identity, and is marked by a deep sense of hopelessness. So his definition um, connects the idea of feeling alone, feeling unseen and disconnected with a lack of purpose or identity, meaningful relationship. And so um, one of the reasons suffering can be so isolating sometimes is it just can flip our world upside down, and it just completely rocks um, our sense of identity and purpose. And so, for example, um, when things are going pretty well, uh, you know, like, what is things going pretty well? I don't know, like, maybe some things, you feel like you have some little bit of control of your life. Things are going a little bit the way that you planned or hoped they would go, Um, and we feel like we've got some kind of little bit of control over, like, our safety, our health, our finances, our career, family, you know, you name it, right? And so you kind of feel like you have a little bit of sense of control. It's going a little bit according to plan. Um, and so whatever you determine is like, it's going like okay or pretty well. But then when something really tough happens, and I'm not talking about like Northern Virginia traffic, um, like that's annoying and that stinks, but you know what I'm talking about. Like when, um, when you experience a loss, Um, when you continually have this unfulfilled dream or unanswered prayer, um, a broken relationship of somebody that's close to you, um, over and over dealing with an addiction, a loss of a job, um, you name it, whatever it is, when that rock bottom moment happens, we can realize that we have so much less control than we had thought. And even in our mind, if we're like, Josh, I never thought I was in control of anything. But like sometimes we can like subconsciously live that way. Like 
Like we do have some bit of control over things, but when these things happen, we are reminded of how not in control that we are, that we are more limited than we thought, that we are not as strong as we had thought. And the faith that maybe we felt like we had, when that rock bottom moment comes, it sometimes feels like it's not working. And you feel like you just keep hitting a wall. And the who I am question, who am I? And the what is my purpose question become hard to answer in those moments. And so in those moments, we might feel surrounded and helpless and weary. We might feel a sense of failure or defeat. And like Job, we can feel lonely. Where is God in the midst of all this? Um, you know, we're searching for hope. We're, we're trying to, you know, get God to respond, you know, to us. And, and so maybe that's a season that you're in right now. Maybe um, it's one you've been in recently. Um, someone that you love dearly is going through a season like this. Um, maybe it is kind of a come or go thing. Like you are really dealing with a long suffering thing and sometimes it is just unbearable and, um, and it comes and goes, but, um, whatever it is, um, we ask ourselves the question we, and we wrestle with, you know, where's the hope? How can I trust God in the midst of this? And, um, how can I trust him when I feel like the most isolated and most disconnected from him. And so that's what we're going to look at here in the rest of the passage. And a plot twist, there is hope, okay? I don't know if that's a plot twist. but um, And so um, we're going to skip verses 21 and 22. We're going to come back to them um, at the end. And so we're going to continue on with what Job says here in verse 23. He says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Job is saying, mark my words. Listen to what I'm saying and listen to what I'm about to say. Mark my words. He says in verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. He says, I know my Redeemer lives. And then, and then he says, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. At this incredibly low point, Job proclaims one of the most profound declarations of faith. The lowest moment of despair is contrasted with this bright flash of faith. This is a shifting point in the Job story. Um, it's not like after he says this and makes this declaration that like he has no more questions or he never ever feels alone ever again, but there's definitely a shift. Because you know why? He is not sitting here saying, he's not asking where, where is my redeemer or um, does my redeemer live? That's not what he says. He declares, he says, I know that my redeemer lives. He is at rock bottom and he is consumed by this one thought. I know that my redeemer lives. 
And uh, to fully understand this, we got to dig a little bit into the context of the word redeemer in the Old Testament. So this word um, redeemer, it's a Hebrew, comes from a Hebrew word, um, goel. And a goel in ancient Hebrew um, was a kinsman redeemer. And throughout the Old Testament, it's a word that was used to describe a family member or a very close friend who, if, if you were in trouble, like, they would come and rescue you. And for example, so back in those times, like, if I had a debt and I could not pay my debt, um, then I would fall into um, slavery to the one who I owed the debt to. And a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, would come and pay the debt. They would ransom my freedom. And so that's um, the word redeemer. And then another example of that is um, if you've suffered an injustice, a kinsman redeemer would come and argue your case like a defense attorney. They would advocate for you to clear your name and they would do what they had to do to restore your honor. And so you might be going, okay, now I'm reading, we're reading through Job and um, Job, on the one hand, is talking about a kinsman redeemer. He says, I know my redeemer lives. And he also said, like a few verses ago, like all my family has left me, right? And so who's the family member who's going to come and save Job? And um, here is another piece of context that's super important. In the Old Testament, in a book like Isaiah, for example, the word redeemer, a goel, was describing God as the kinsman redeemer, that God is the kinsman redeemer of Israel, that he is the one who would come and rescue them from exile. He is the one who is going to bring them out, um, you know, back into the promised land. So what Job is declaring here, Job is saying that God will come to my rescue. He makes this unconditional affirmation about God's commitment to him in his lowest, darkest moment. From Job's perspective, Think about it. He doesn't understand everything that's happening. He doesn't have all the context that we have. Um, He doesn't know why it's happening. Um, You know, the best he's coming up with is like, I know my friends are wrong. And like, I don't think it's like something that I did, but like God, like what's going on. And so he's blaming God. And so he's trying to figure it out. He's trying to piece it together the best that he can with what he can see. And so even though he doesn't have all the answers, He still says, I know my Redeemer lives. And then he says that he will stand upon the earth. This is like a legal terminology. Um, It's someone who would come to Job's defense. That Job had no idea, um, you know, how God was going to figure it out. But he knew that God would figure it out. He knew that God was committed to him even when he felt isolated and, and alone in this dark rock bottom moment. He knew He knew God. He knew that God um, was committed to him. And in fact, God was working out the rescue plan. Because what did God do? God, some way, somehow, sent his son Jesus into the world years later. And all the references in the Old Testament to the kinsman redeemer, to the Goel, pointed to the Messiah who was promised who came in the form of Jesus. And as Paul said, God made him, God made Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus became abandoned 
in his ultimate suffering so that we would never be abandoned in our suffering. So no matter how low the rock bottom moment is, no matter how long you feel like it's lasting, you have no idea how long it's going to last. He is more than a God who watches. He's more than a God who just listens. He is a God who enters in. He became our advocate. He argued our case to the grave so that when we suffer, we know that we never suffer alone. Check out what Paul says. Um, He's been through a good deal bit of suffering as well. He says this in Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He says, past past tense, uh, Christ who died. And he says, past tense, Christ who was raised to life. And then he says, present tense. He is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Paul doesn't just say that Christ came and he bore our sins and he died and he rose again. He says that he is actively, right now, standing in for you that he is right now standing in as your advocate, as your defender, saying, the debt's been paid. You've been redeemed. Fully forgiven. Fully redeemed sons and daughters of God. So Job in his rock bottom moment, Paul in all of his rock bottom moments, they are flooded with hope. They did not just know in their head that God was for them, but they had this deep understanding, deep down in their soul that was deeper than any of their circumstances, any of their losses, any of anything like that, that it was so deep, they knew that God was for them, that God is with them, that they are not alone in their suffering. Paul says again in Romans 8, Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Ultimately, God will meet you. He will meet me in our, the depths of our loneliness, in the depths of our suffering, There is absolutely nothing that can separate us from his love. There is so much that we will not understand about God. We can grow to know God more, but we can never fully understand. Not this side of heaven. God is so much bigger than that. He exists in a way that we can't even comprehend. And so we can know him more, but our faith must cover the gap between what we can and we can't understand about God. So no, we won't understand. His ways are not our ways. And we can't control how long the hard seasons are or when they come or what they are. With that comes a lot of mystery. 
Yet, the invitation stands. Are we willing to say yes to Jesus, to the one who has ransomed you, to the one who has paid the debt and now stands for you? The invitation is to say yes to him as your redeemer. And when we are willing to trust him, to stick with him in the rock bottom moments, we say, yes, Jesus, I know that you are my redeemer and that you are alive, that you are standing in for me. We receive a new identity as redeemed people. And then we are called and get the opportunity to be a part of God's redemptive work in the world. And I'm going to spend um, just the last bit of time that we have here talking about like, okay, what does that look like? How do I live out my new identity in Christ as a redeemed person? And how do I partner with God in the redemptive work that he's doing in the world? Number one, when we claim Jesus is our redeemer, we gain a new identity. What we see in Job is that when everything is stripped away, he still has faith. His identity and understanding of God is so much deeper than his circumstances. And when God is our redeemer, our answer to the who am I, that question, the answer changes. You know what the top five answers to like who am I are? Um, This is what Henry Howen, a Dutch theologian, says. Most common five answers about what people claim is their identity, what defines them. Number one, I am what I have. Number two, I am what I do. Welcome to Northern Virginia. Number three, I am what other people say or think of me. You live to to enslave to what people say or think about you. Number four, I am nothing more than my worst moment. I am nothing more than my worst moment. Or number five, I am nothing less than my best moment. And these are the messages that we will try to to form our identity around them and and cultures pushing them on on us all the time. These externalized, like, forms of identity that we try to build ourselves on. What you do, who you marry, being a parent, your accomplishments. You are defined by the, the worst thing you did 10 years ago. That is what defines you, your political affiliation or whatever it is. But the thing is, is when the hard times happen and not the traffic, the other stuff, when that happens, anything other than God is our redeemer, then we crumble. What the truth of scripture tells us is that the loneliness and the separation from God are a complete lie. We might feel them, but it is not true. The who am I question is actually a whose are you question. God has purposefully redeemed us. He has purposefully redeemed you, adopted you as a son or a daughter. Our identity is not from something that's outside that we try to cling on to. It's deep within our souls. It's not about our circumstances. It's about nothing else around us. It's deep within our souls as a representation of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And to live out this new identity is a decision that we make over and over again. The formation of our new identity is about embracing weakness. You know, sometimes here in this place, we talk about being raised to life. 
Hallelujah, amen to that. Sometimes we say yes to Jesus as our redeemer and he wants to raise us to new life, but we stay in the coffin. We stay in our old life and we don't say yes to get up and live in the new identity that God has created us and called us to live. By his grace, through the power of his spirit, he says you are free. You are redeemed. And he calls us to live that way every day, to say no to these other identities that try to define us, but yes to our beloved Jesus. And that is a process. We don't just say one day, okay, my identity's in Christ, nothing else to do, I'm good. That's not how it works. It is a journey that we do and say yes to Jesus every single day. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of seeking solitude, not to be lonely, but to be with Jesus, to meditate on his word. For a lot of us, for honestly everybody, it takes a lot of counseling. Praise God for the healing and redemptive work he does in counseling. And our church is a church that cares about counseling. We care about our care groups, and we believe, man, um, the brokenness and sin that's in the world, we all need healing. We all need healing to be able to live into the identity that God has created us and called us to be. But we have to be willing to be weak. We have to be fully ourselves before the gospel. Let the blood of Jesus, let the love and the grace of God pour over every fiber of your being. Let God transform you. And we have to be willing to do the hard work that's required for that, right? Connectedness and community. Being in community where it's like scary close, that's scary. But man, is it transformative when we are willing to walk and share life with other believers. That's why we care so much about small groups here. And all this stuff, God wants to rewrite our story. God wants to redeem our story. So the first step out of loneliness is choosing the free gift that God has for us over and over again. When we realize we are redeemed, when we realize that we are beloved and chosen and healed and restored, it is then an invitation to stick with God even through the biggest and thickest walls that might come at us and to partner with him in the redeeming, restorative work that he's doing in the world. And so that's the second and last point. I want to go back to verses 21 and 22. When Job says to his friends, have pity on me, my friends. Have pity for the hand of God has struck me why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Job is saying um, this because earlier in, chat, in verses one through five, which we didn't have a chance to look at in detail today, but in verses one and five, Job says to his friends, how long will you torment me and crush me with your words? If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me. Putting this all together, his, his, first of all, his friends are jerks, right? But um, they probably meant well. But um, here's, here's the deal. Sometimes we're the jerk. 
that sometimes we can have a tendency to put other people down, to, to look at other people who are struggling, who are broken, who are lost, who need love and the hope of Jesus, and we look down on them. And so we are the ones that crush others with our words, or we're the ones that exalt ourselves over somebody else for all kinds of reasons, because it makes us feel better about ourselves, that maybe we're wrestling with something, and, and to put someone else down just helps us for just a little while. But when we understand the gospel, when we understand that Jesus left his exalted and high place, humbled himself, and allowed himself to be crushed, that is what gives us as redeemed people the humility, the joy, the patience to actually be a people, to be the body of Christ that moves towards people who are suffering. That we are a people of love and mercy that move towards the lost and the broken, not in judgment, but in mercy. And too often as the church or as followers of Jesus, we want to move out into the world and we want to make a difference, but we start moving with judgment and self-righteousness. We're looking down at everybody from our pedestal and, and, and you don't believe the same as us and, and you act differently than you're supposed to and, and you, know, you believe this and you vote this way and whatever. And here I am, better than you. And maybe we don't say that, but gosh, that is the posture that we will try to move into the world with. As redeemed people, we are carriers of the hope that has transformed us. We are hope bringers. The church should be on the move in the world out of mercy and love, moving towards those who are suffering, moving towards those who are lost and broken, not in judgment, but in love. And when we, when we don't let the gospel sink into the core of who we are, the, the self-righteousness, the, the being on a pedestal, actually pulls us away from people who, who, need, who need us the most. We actually cannot move towards people who are struggling. We cannot actually move towards people who need the hope of the gospel when we are so caught up in being better than them. The call of the church is to be a part of God's redemptive work in the world in society, in the lives of people. And so the question is, are we willing to move in, get down in the dust with those who are suffering? Are we willing to get down in the dust with those who are far from God? That's what Jesus did. Jesus ate dinner with, with this group of people. He did this and that. Are we willing to do the same? with mercy. Mercy is the mark of someone who understands the hope they have in Christ as redeemer. Mercy is the mark of someone who has a deep understanding of God in the midst of their own suffering. And mercy is the mark of someone who knows that in their brokenness and weakness, Jesus stands as their advocate. So when we are made new in Christ and we move into the world as redeemed people, our mission, our purpose, Remember we talked about the who I am and what's my purpose. Our mission and our purpose flows out of that transformed identity as a redeemed person, as a child of God. It allows us to move into the world that can feel so hostile, that can feel so counter to, to the, what it, God has called us to do. 
We can move through it with hope and grace and love. We can move towards those who have lost hope. We can move towards to those who are hurting and choose to be a part of their story. Lastly, um, super lastly, I uh, just want to end with reading again Job's proclamation of hope here in verse 25. In his rock bottom moment, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job says that even if his suffering destroys him, the ultimate vindication is that one day he knows he will be restored, that he will stand again, that he will be renewed. Job knew that if God was coming as his redeemer, that there is always hope beyond despair. When we are living in to um, having God as our redeemer, we are transformed by the hope of the gospel and it gives us this ability to see beyond our circumstances. We gain this kingdom perspective and like Job, our heart yearns. Our heart yearns to see the kingdom of God come in all of its fullness to see the restoration and redemption of all things. It doesn't mean we have all the answers to our questions, um, but it does mean that we can choose to have hope. So no matter what you're going through right now, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're feeling, you can choose to have hope. You can choose to declare like Job, I know that my redeemer lives. When we claim God as our redeemer, it, 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 it resists against the lie that says there's no hope, that it will always be this way. The hope of the gospel whispers to us in our darkest moment, it's gonna be all right, keep going. Our redeemer is alive. We gain a kingdom vision where hope conquers despair, where life conquers death, glory conquers shame. That is the hope that our Redeemer is alive and he's making all things new. It's an invitation to you. Where does God need to make you new today? Where does God need to bring healing and restoration into your life? Where do you need to live in to your redeemed identity in Christ? Maybe here today, You've been far from God for a while, and today you say, God, I'm claiming you as my redeemer. I'm saying yes to Jesus today. Whatever it is for you. Maybe you're wrestling with um, how you can um, get off your pedestal and begin to move towards those that God has um, placed around you in your work or in your life or wherever who just need, um, who need you there who needs the hope of the gospel, who needs to experience the love of Christ. But it allows us, it requires us to get a little dusty, a little messy to do that. Whatever it is for you, let's lift it up to God right now. Father God, we um, just humbly come before you 
And um, God, we are just in awe of God, your gracious gift of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you that there is hope that we can live a redeemed life, that we can live a new story, that we aren't defined by all these things that try to define us, God, but that we can um, live anew, that we can raise up out of the coffin, God, and live the new life that you have for us. And so, God, I just pray for everybody in this room, God, that you um, would just move with your Holy Spirit, God, that you would um, transform us, God, you'd prune the things in us, God, that are not of you. God, that you would um, place your truth in our mind to resist the lies, God, that you would give us a confidence of our humble dependence on you. God, the world, (laughs) the world is struggling and we know that um, you have called us to partner with you, to be a part of your redemptive work, to bring hope to a world that needs it. And God, I just pray that you would use us. God, we love you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.